which doesn't really have a beginning. It is a story which begins in God, and God is eternal. God is one who has no beginning or end. He is the eternal God. But for those of us who are created, there is a beginning. And so we begin the story of God's never-ending love for us with creation. Creation of the angels. Angels are those perfect spiritual beings who are superior to man in their intellect and power but are without a body. Angels, too, were made to share in God's glory and to be part of his life. They, too, are made in God's image. They have an intellect and a will. They are personal and immortal. They don't, however, have a family life. Each angel is its own species. They do not procreate. They have no body. They are complete at their creation. Their knowledge is perfect and complete, so at their creation, their decision for or against God was permanent. As immortal beings, they have no capacity to repent of their bad choice. Their knowledge of God's professional love is complete. Their will is free. Angels who rejected God at their creation are fallen angels or demons. They are real. We hear in St. Luke's Gospel, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. There is a dark force in the world. We see it in the news, on our TVs, in the movies, maybe even in our homes. There is a darkness that is fighting through your soul. God has won the war, but the battle for individual freedom in Christ continues. Throughout our history, angels participate in God's work of love to redeem us. They unceasingly serve and adore God. The actions of angels are seen throughout the Old and New Testament with Adam and Eve, the saving of Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah. An angel prevents Abraham from the slaying of his son Isaac. The archangel announces the incarnation. Angels are real, just as evil is real, just as good is real. God also chose to create man. This was a choice not made because God needed man. It was a choice made out of love. God does not need anything. If he did, he would not be God. The God of Israel is a triune God, a God of communion, a communion of persons, a communion of love. God did not create so that he could have someone to love. He already has that. He creates as love, or he is love. God creates in order for us to participate in his divine love. He creates out of nothing. He therefore has given us everything we are. He even gives us our capacity to receive ourselves. God creates us body and soul. He creates us to image him, to live in communion with him and others. This is his plan for us, living in communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the moment of creation, God the Father intended to invite all people to share in his Trinitarian life. Let us create man in our image. In love, he would care for them. In love, they would obey his holy will. He began by creating our first parents, a man and a woman, and decreed that they would be fruitful in their love for one another and fill the earth. Over time, God gathered for people to himself in a series of covenants based on that love. Each covenant has a sign and invites an ever greater
greater number of people into relationship with God. And the first covenant was the covenant of creation. The creation of Adam and Eve. This covenant was with a married couple. And the signs of this covenantal relationship are the Sabbath rest and the consummation of their marriage in keeping with the first commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Covenant relationships are relationships among persons. There is an exchange of persons, not material goods. It's a giving over of one's life to another. This is what a covenant entails. Adam and Eve used their free will to say no to God. They did so with the help of one of the fallen angels who also said no. In turning away from God, they sinned. They desired to be like God without him. You will be like God, the fallen angel told them. As a result of turning away, human nature is forever wounded. The intellect and will given in perfection and creation is now cloudy. It is more difficult now to see who God is. The will is wounded and weakened. The unity between God and man, man and woman, man and earth is forever damaged. Despite this catastrophe, God has a plan, a plan to bring us back. At the instant of the fall, God reveals this plan in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will place enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head, and you will strike its heel. Original sin is now part of the human condition and is passed on through the propagation of the human race. All men and women, despite their race, socioeconomic status, or religion, are subject to the fact of original sin. It is inherited, remitted, not committed. God's covenant with Noah represents a larger covenantal relationship. Noah has a family of eight who are included in this plan. Noah says yes to the Lord in starting over. Along with Noah's yes comes the building of an ark. Noah's yes accompanied obedience that built the ark. The sign of the covenantal relationship between Noah and God is the rainbow, a promise by God to never again destroy the earth through a flood. The covenant with Abraham involves a tribe. God's family is growing larger. And the sign of this covenant is circumcision. God's next covenant is with Moses. God is calling a nation to himself through Moses. The sign of this covenant is the Ten Commandments. God is increasing the size of the people he invites into relationship with him. The covenant with David involves a kingdom of one nation ruling over all the others, and the signs of this covenantal relationship are the throne of the king in the temple. The spousal character of God's relationship to his people is revealed in the, in the book of Hosea as well as the other prophets. I will espouse you to myself forever, and you shall know the Lord. The great dignity according to family life are revealed from the very beginning in Genesis, the rest of the Old Testament, and of course within the New. All the while, God is sending his prophets out to remind the people of who they are and that he has a plan. His plan from all eternity to send his son, to become one of us, to show us the great dignity and meaning of the human person made in his image. And so in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. God not only provides a plan, but continues to involve humanity intimately in it. God becomes one of us, and one of us is asked to cooperate in the plan 
And she says yes. She provides a human nature to Jesus. Without this provision, Jesus would not have been truly man. The new Adam is born, the one who is obedient to the Father in every way. He says yes when the first Adam said no. The final and everlasting covenant, then, is in God's complete gift of himself in his Son. It is in his Son, in the incarnation of Christ, that God becomes man and establishes the new covenant in his blood through his life, death, and resurrection. The new Adam comes in humility and obedience. He lives in obscurity for 30 years in obedience to his parents and God. His identity is continually revealed to us through the pages of sacred scripture and the witness of the church. In the finding of Jesus in the temple, the child of 12 reveals himself again to his parents. How could you not know that I would be in my father's house? During the last three years of his life, he brings a small group of followers around him. His message is to turn from sin. His message was not well received. He performs many miracles, such as water turned to wine. He heals the sick and raises the dead. He tells a woman everything she ever did. His message is to turn from sin. His message is not well received. In death, he takes on our sin dies for us. He is tortured, crucified, and eventually he dies for this message. In his death, he takes on our sin. He weighed the wages of sin or death. When we sin, we earn death. We die to who we are, to who we are meant to be in Christ. Christ has freed us from this enslavement. The sign of this new covenant occurs just before his death. Jesus institutes the Eucharist, the sign of the new covenant in his blood, his presence with us forever on earth in his completeness and fullness. This is the fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He told them that he would always be with them, and in his body and blood he always is. He is God. He says, do this in memory of me, and they understood that they were to represent this throughout all the time. This new covenant is with all of humanity, with those who hear and heed him, made one family in the Holy Spirit. God wills that all men will be saved, but not all will be. Christ also established a church. It is not something that came later. The church is the visible sign and embodiment of the new covenant. It is an extension of his incarnation. It is his body. Until the end of time, the church offers God's love and invitation to all people. The church is given the mission of safeguarding and passing on that which has been given, all of it. The truth of who God is, the very life of God himself, the grace of God, the sacraments, the Holy Spirit are working through the church who will dispense this grace. We become members of this church through the sacrament of baptism. This sacrament was the benchmark for beginning his public ministry. 
allowed himself to be baptized. And in his baptism, he baptizes the waters. When the apostles are given their commission, he says, go out and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the gateway to new life, the new life of the Trinity. So the mission of the church must go on after the apostles. It would be an odd plan if it was to end with the death of the apostles. And so today we have from the beginning a visible representation of the apostles, an apostolic succession through which the Holy Spirit continues to work. It is here to ensure that the deposit of faith is given in a specific way. There are seven sacraments, channels, or vehicles that the church uses to provide access to God's life. It is through these sacraments that we owe ourselves to God. Sacramentum means to swear an oath. As he reached out to them, they had a chance to say yes or no. So do we. God gives us the faith to believe, and he does this through the sacraments. There are many in our church who have done just that. They have said yes, they have lived the life of faith that God has prescribed for them. They have been obedient, even when obedience did not make sense. We call these faithful witnesses saints. They lived the life of Christ well. We do not worship these saints, but we honor and respect them for the way they've lived their lives, and in doing so, we glorify the handiwork of God. They help us to know that with God's grace, we too can become great saints. We are all called to be saints to witness to the life and truth he gives us. Our goal is eternal life in God, and we saints are road signs for us. The church is the place, the instrument of God, by which one people of God is built up. It's exciting that you all are investigating and studying this church, the sacrament of salvation, this dispenser of all graces. From this point onward, we will be delving into these great mysteries of faith so that you can understand more deeply and intimately the saving power of God. Questions or comments about anything that you saw? I mean, that's really kind of just, I know it's, it's kind of like a lot of stuff, but I'm really going to be going into each part of that. I just think it's kind of helpful to see that kind of in one fail swoop. Any questions or comments? We're going to have some time to have some small group, but anything that just kind of stuck out to you that you wanted to ask about? Thumbs down, turn on the lights. So see, don't turn on the lights, I'm going to show you one more thing. Um, so, so the next thing I want to show you now is kind of a smaller version of kind of the beginning. And I, I have a great video by the Augustine Institute that I want to show you that's going to kind of work our way, I think, in a very um, theologically um, solid manner, kind of the beginning, original sin, and why Christ did what he did. And so we're going to go ahead with that, and then we'll have some time to have some small group conversation.
is the story by which we understand our lives. It reminds us of where we came from. It points us to where we're going, and it shows us why we're here. In the creed, we see that our individual lives are part of a much larger story, a story that has been going on from the beginning of time. And it's only by seeing our lives in that narrative that we begin to discover our purpose. seeking the ruin of Adam and Eve. 
And so Satan tempts Adam and Eve, and they decide not to follow God. Right? They give in to the battle. And when they do that, that harmony, that beautiful relationship is destroyed. Adam and Eve destroyed it. They could know God. Now it's harder to know God because sin makes it harder to know God. They could, they could follow God with their, with their human will. Now it's going to be a lot harder to follow God with their human will. So when Adam and Eve fall because they're our first parents, this sin and the damage of sin is echoed down to generation to generation, even to today, where, as you know, you and I really sit in this cosmic battle between good and evil, being tempted by Satan not to follow God. And there's this uh, church language that's used to describe this reality of, uh, of how we've been wounded because of Adam and Eve's first sin. That's original sin. What, what is that? Yeah, so, so this original sin, this first sin that Adam and Eve um, contracted by not following God, it echoes down, and, and, and we all inherit this because we're all a family under Adam and Eve, in what is sometimes called concupiscence. It's just a kind of fancy word, concupiscence, which simply means um, we have an inclination to sin. So you can see now we're in some trouble because it's harder to know God, it's harder to follow God, the communion that we have with each other is, is blown apart, and we're easy targets for Satan because we have an inclination to sin. And so Satan now has set up this situation where he has a certain in on us, right? He has a certain easy target on us. So this is anything really, you know, uh, extraordinary. This is something else that, this is something every human person experiences. So that we, we may have a sense of what's right, but sometimes we're not sure. It's not clear to us what the right thing is. And sometimes we may even know what the right thing is to do, but we don't do it. You know, I know I should get up at a certain time, or I know I should be kind or patient, and I'm not, I'm not kind, I'm not patient. Uh, that's the reality every human person faces, and that's all a result of all that you're describing. Exactly. Now, the beautiful thing is that God knows this. And remember, the whole story is really about God's never-ending love. And God sees the battle. He knows what happened. We're his sons and his daughters. He sees us wounded. He's not going to leave us out of the battlefield alone. So when, when God approaches Adam and Eve, even in the garden, even after they just sinned against him, he's just a generous uh, God, God of mercy and grace. And so he approaches them and he tells them right away, I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I'm, I, I am going to send my son uh, he promises immediately that he's going to send his son really to destroy this, this death and to really uh, restore us right, to his life as sons and daughters of God. And today we're living in the middle of this story. The story has continued uh, in our own lives. Yeah, and we, we have the same choice that Adam and Eve had. We have this loving God who's revealing himself and wants to have communion with us. And we have Satan and we have the fallen angels, the demons prowling around, seeking our room. And we have to remember that, that there is a story and we're in it. And every decision that we make is either a decision closer to God and closer to heaven, or uh, closer to sin and closer to death and eternal damnation. And the modern world would like us to believe, you know what, there is no story, there is no good and evil, and there is no point. And that's the same lie that Satan wants us to buy into.
people think about Christianity, they may think about Bible stories such as Noah and the Ark, or Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. Or they may think of events from Jesus' life. He was born in Bethlehem. He died on a cross. Or they may recall how Jesus established a church and gave us baptism in the Eucharist. So they're familiar with these individual pieces, but how do they all relate together? That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to see how these individual aspects of Christianity all come together to tell the one marvelous story of God's plan of salvation. This great story could be divided in three major parts. First, God, who is perfectly happy on his own, freely chose to create us out of his own love and goodness, to share his love and goodness. He made us in his image to live like him, to live self-giving love. And we see our first parents, Adam and Eve, living this way. So there was originally this great unity that they had with God, but that harmony with God spilled over in their own relationship. So there was great unity within the human family. So originally, the human family was the united family of God. But then, Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God and refused to give themselves as a gift of love. And as a result, they hurt their relationship with God. In fact, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve turned away from the presence of the Lord God. But their sin also hurt their relationship with each other. The Bible shows us that after they sin, they start blaming each other. They don't trust each other. There's tension in their relationship. So sin breaks our relationship with God on the vertical level, but it also hurts our relationship with each other on the horizontal level. So in the end, we see that God's people, far from being the united family of God, have become a broken human family. Nevertheless, God has a plan, and we see him in salvation history gradually gathering his people back. He works with key leaders in the Bible, people like Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, and this great plan reaches its climax when God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and offer that perfect gift of love that restores us to the Father. And the Son sends the Holy Spirit to fill us with his very life. But Jesus doesn't want to save us individually, separate from each other. We've seen throughout salvation history God drawing people back to himself to restore unity on that vertical level, but he also wants to draw people together in unity on that horizontal level. That's why Jesus establishes one worldwide church that gathers all humanity back into the one family of God, this universal church or this Catholic church. In fact, the word Catholic means universal. For 2,000 years, the Catholic church has been faithfully handing on the teachings of Jesus Christ and through the sacraments, the graces he won for us on the cross so that we might be equipped to live like him to live that total self-giving love that we were made for from the very beginning so that we might be with God forever in heaven. Now, let's take a closer look at this story of salvation as we move from creation to the fall to redemption in Jesus Christ and the Catholic Church. God first announces his plan of salvation in the Garden of Eden, where he announces that one day a Savior will come to redeem all of humanity. So God begins his plan of salvation with this enormous vision, but he also starts it very, very small with just one couple, Adam and Eve, and then that expands to one chosen family with Noah and his family. And then the plan of salvation expands to include one chosen tribe with 
Abraham and his whole tribe. And then it expands to one chosen nation, Moses and the whole people of Israel. Then finally expands to one chosen kingdom, with King David and his heirs and the kingdom of Israel. Now all of these Old Testament stories are brought to culmination and fulfillment in the life of Jesus, who comes as a new king to establish a new kingdom that is the church. And the church is meant for the salvation of the entire world, not just anymore one family or one tribe or one nation, but the whole world is invited to share in the salvation which Jesus brings. If I had to pick just one story from the Bible that could unlock for you the rest of salvation history, it would be the story of Abraham. In this story, we see how God gives Abraham three promises that really serve as a table of contents for understanding the rest of the Bible. So if you know these three promises given to Abraham, you'll understand God's plan of salvation very well. In these three promises, we see how God wants to use Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, as his instrument for bringing blessing to the rest of the world, gathering the nations back into one covenant family. Let's take a look at those three promises and see how they unfold in Israel's history. First of all, God promised Abraham that one day his descendants would become a great nation. That promise is fulfilled in the time of Moses. When Moses takes Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, out of Egypt and brings them to the promised land. They become a nation ruling over themselves. The second promise is that Abraham was told by God that one day his descendants would become a great kingdom. Kings would come forth from his line. They're not just a nation, they're a kingdom ruling over other nations now. That becomes fulfilled at the time of David. David establishes the kingdom of Israel and, and expands the borders of Israel and begin ruling over other nations. His son Solomon, in fact, starts teaching the pagan nations the truth about the one true God. But God has even bigger plans in store for Abraham's family. They would become not just a nation, not just a kingdom, but they would become one day a source of bringing blessing to the entire world. And we see this third promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate son of Abraham. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of God, comes to die on the cross for our sins, to establish his church, and gather all nations back into the one covenant family of God. God's whole plan of salvation comes to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. God become man. God sends the only son, Jesus Christ, to the world to, to redeem the world from sin. God did not just send a messenger or an angel or a prophet or a healer. He sent his very own son, who's divine, so that we might have new life. Now, Jesus came to the world. He preached the kingdom of God. He preached repentance. He did many miracles and signs. But he also suffered. He died on the cross. And God raised him from the dead so that we might have hope of new life, of eternal life with God in heaven forever. So why did God become man? Well, it's very simple. We, as sinful human beings, broke God's infinite law and therefore incurred infinite debt to God that we were not able to repay. So Jesus, as God become man, can represent us as man, but also has the ability to repay that infinite debt that we incurred as God. So Jesus, on our behalf, pays the debt of sin to God through his crucifixion and death on the cross, and offers us new eternal life through his resurrection. So how does Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully human, redeem us from our sin? And I want to tell a story. I call it the story of two gardens. And let's go back to the Garden of Eden, where we had Adam, who was the son of God. And he was in the garden, and he was in perfect communion with God. But then he faced the test, a temptation, 
And he proved to be unfaithful. He disobeyed God. And that led ultimately to him being banned from eating the fruit of the tree of life, which meant he lost total communion with God. But now, centuries later, we find ourselves in another garden. And this garden of Gethsemane, we find Jesus, the new Adam, who's not just a man, but he's fully God. And Jesus is facing this enormous test. And that enormous test is the crucifixion the next day. And he has a choice to either obey or to not obey his father. But Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane has perfect obedience. He says three times, Father, not my will be done, but yours. And his perfect obedience leads to the crucifixion, to the cross. And the early church fathers, they called the cross the tree. Why? Because Jesus Christ crucified, because he's fully God and fully man, becomes the new tree of life. So what we see here is Jesus, the new Adam, is canceling out the disobedience of Adam. And once again, through the cross, through the new tree of life, restoring us to full communion with God. During his earthly ministry, Jesus not only proclaimed the kingdom of God, but he established the kingdom of God in his church. He appointed 12 apostles to be his successors, to proclaim the kingdom of God throughout the world, to make disciples and to baptize them. The apostles handed on their authority to the bishops, and the bishops their successors down in the church today. So the church takes on the mission of Jesus, the mission of proclamation, of baptizing, and of making disciples in every nation and every generation, constantly expanding God's plan of salvation to include everyone in intimate communion with Christ. We've seen how God's plan from the very beginning was for us to be united with Him and united with each other. But sin has brought division into this world. We are a broken family of man, but God has been gradually gathering his people back, and this plan culminates when he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and to gather us all back into one covenant family. That's why the apostles proclaim one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one church. And the church is the reunited family of God. One of the things that we will be judged on at the end of time is how well we live this unity with Jesus. Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead at the end of time. Everyone will be judged on the basis of what they've done on their, on their deeds, whether they've chosen love of self or love of God. And by this judgment, Jesus will usher in the final stage of the kingdom of God, the time of unity between Jesus and his bride, the church, in an everlasting union of love. Every day we make choices, and those choices are either going to lead us closer to God or farther away from Him. And every day, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit through His church that we might live out our lives in accordance with His plan and make the right choices so that we can live with Him forever in heaven. Our ultimate destiny in Christ is eternal life in heaven with Him. And each and every day, Jesus is inviting us to walk with Him. He's inviting us to experience this life and this salvation that he desires to give us. But we, every day, have to cooperate with that grace. We have to invite that life of Christ into our own lives. And when we do that, and when we walk with Jesus Christ, we experience the fullness of life and love that he desires us to have with him forever and ever. If we consider all we've explored in today's session, we can see there are three major parts in the story of salvation. First, creation. God, who is infinitely perfect and happy in himself, freely created man to make him share in his own goodness and love. Man and woman were made in God's image, made to know and love God, capable of giving themselves in love. 
Originally, men and women had unity with God on the vertical level and harmony between themselves on the horizontal level. Humanity was the united family of God, reflecting the unity of God himself. Second, the fall. Man and woman sinned. They disobeyed God and refused to give themselves in love. This sin broke our relationship with God and broke the harmony between man and woman. This original sin also brought death into the world and wounded our human nature, making it difficult for Adam and Eve's descendants to know the truth and do the good. We all now have an inclination towards sin, an inclination called concupiscence. Third, redemption. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, offering on our behalf the perfect gift of love that restores us to the Father. And the Father sent the Son to send the Holy Spirit to fill us with his very life. But Jesus didn't come to save us individually. He established the universal Catholic Church to gather the broken family of man into the united family of God. The Catholic Church passes on the teachings of Christ and through the sacraments dispenses the graces he won for us on the cross to equip us to do the good we find so difficult to do, to enable us to live like Christ, indeed to live in Christ, so that we may be with him forever in heaven. Now, let's take a look at how we live this story in our daily lives. Curtis, we've been hearing about this great story, God's plan of salvation, and then we have a role to play in the story, but what does that really mean for us? Well, first of all, I think it's so great to be Catholic because we understand not just the stories, the small stories that are in the Bible, but we've come to understand the giant story. And as we read that and recognize life has meaning and purpose, then something even more amazing happens. And particularly when we encounter the Gospels, when we start to meet Jesus, we encounter him in the Gospels, and he invites us into the story. We start to realize that we've been invited to write the most recent chapter in salvation history. That actually what's going on right now is part of this giant story. And we're not just spectators. We actually have roles to play. We actually are, have a, a role to play that's so vitally important that if we don't do that, if we don't respond, the world is poorer because of that. And so that's the exciting thing to recognize. God has such intense meaning and purpose for your life. And he's been writing about this. And you have a part to play in all of this. What does this mean for me just daily saying that the way I live my life will, will, will make a big difference? You know, one way to, what, what does that mean just in terms of my desire to live the story day to day. Well, first of all, let's compare and contrast that to the rest of what the world is saying. The world is saying your life really doesn't mean anything. You can do whatever you want because you're you're not that significant. So play hours of video games, waste time all day long. You think about the noise, the iPads, and the iPhones, and all these things. And again, not knocking uh, Apple, but it's distracting. There's noise in our ears. There's visual images all around us, and it gets us distracted from the from the story from salvation history, recognize we've got this role to play, it's vitally important. You can't kill time without injuring eternity. There's this deep sense of what we do with the moments of our life every day makes enormous difference. And if we could see that, it would change the way that we would live and act. A lot of the brokenness that we see in the modern world, uh, how much would you say that's due to the fact that the, the modern world has lost the sense of, of life being a, a part of this larger story? Well, I think it, the, those who are experts in this would say that one of the fundamental characteristics of our world is that there is no sense of narrative in our lives at all. Um, modernity kind of teaches this, as we said before. You can do whatever you want, which really means you have no relevance whatsoever. Go ahead and do whatever you want because you have no 
part to play. Your choices don't matter. They don't matter. You don't matter. Your choices don't matter. I mean, you would never say that to somebody. You know, you would never say that to the President of the United States. You'd never say that to a soldier who's coming up the hill. All of a sudden, you're coming up the hill against the enemy. All of a sudden, you do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. No, I need you right now. And for us to realize that we have a desperate need, God has made us to depend on one another. And the way that we become reliable in those relationships is to live the way God wants us to live, has called us to live. And the way we do that is to be in union with Him by meeting Him in prayer, by talking to Him on a regular basis, by receiving grace through the sacraments, and then going out and making the decisions in day-to-day life with the heart of a hero. Because there really is a drama at play, as it was in the book of Genesis and Exodus, and in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. There is right now, in, in our lives, a drama playing out, and our choices make tremendous difference in the way things play out. How about you personally? This idea that you you are a part of a larger story. Uh, how do you practically live this out? Like, what are the ways you find yourself making decisions and realizing, wow, I better make a good decision to be a part of the, of the story and be a hero in the story? Well, the interesting thing is that when you realize that you have a, a role in this story, even though the role compared to that of Jesus is a much smaller role, it actually gives dignity to your life. And in my own life, all of a sudden, everything made more sense. Everything was more important. Because I realized I was playing a, a, even a small part, but a small part that's irreplaceable in the greatest story ever told. And I, I think of a friend of mine who called me up one day and was very excited that, that she got a new job. And she, and she was, went on and on the new job. I said, well, what exactly are you doing? She said, well, I'm going to be opening mail. I'm thinking, why would you be excited? <laughs> but she had been hired by the President of the United States to open mail. And because she was part of something much bigger, even though her role seemed somewhat insignificant, because it was t- attached to something so amazingly important, well, the president's job is really important, but it's nothing compared to the role of Jesus Christ, his person, everything that he's done. And for us to realize we have a role to play, and it's direct service to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, means that I actually have to try to bring my A game every day, all day long. I fail all the time, but when I'm recovering from those failures, it is the reminder that Jesus Christ has invited me to live in union with him, and that I'm part of a project that he's leading. And so it really has changed the way that I, I live in my marriage, the way that I raise my children, the way that I, I do my work, and even the work that I do about working in evangelization with college students, all of this has been guided by this invitation to be part of something far greater than I am and finding my dignity in that. This reminds me of something I've heard you talk about before, which is a great reflection that a Catholic saint named St. Ignatius of Loyola once gave about what he calls the two standards. Could you explain that for us? Absolutely. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits, was calling a generation to recognize how important their lives were and at a certain point in time, he's asking us to reflect in the midst of his retreat on the meditation of the two standards, or two flags. When armies would come into battle, one side would come in and they'd have their flag and represent their nation, what they stood for, and the other side would have theirs. And essentially, he says, look, the world's in the midst of this cosmic battle, and there are two kingdoms at war. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of light and goodness and mercy and truth, and the kingdom of the devil, which is a kingdom of, of warfare and hatred. Of every, it opposes everything that Christ stands for. And you and I, every person, we get to choose what side we want to fight for. And so imagine those two flags, and you're standing there before Jesus Christ, and he's saying, you pick. You want to fight for me, or you want to fight against me? And that's the decision, that's the dignity that each one of us have to be able to make that decision. Staring Jesus Christ in the eyes and say, I'm with you, or being honest enough to sit back and say, I am not with you. Don't live in the middle where we, we pretend it doesn't matter. No, that's to waste and, and misunderstand the whole meaning of life. That's the power of the narrative of salvation history to recognize that that's the choice we should make. And every day we make decisions, we make choices in our 
nitty gritty daily lives that lead us to one banner or to the other, one flag or the other. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a simple uh, principle that we've got up on our refrigerator. It's just kind of a progression of us. It's, it's sow a thought and reap an action. Sow an action and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. Our, it all begins with how we're thinking. What are we thinking? The choices we make. Our eternal destiny is determined through a series of events that begin with thinking rightly. That's the gift of knowing the story. It really is the paradigm, the way of looking at life that allows us to see things accurately so we can have the right thoughts and make the right choices.